Welcome to episode 13 of the podcast of Lifeline of the Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Chichiboy. Chapter 13, Going Home with Lester. Well, now that you're going to survive, how do I get you off this damn IV pole? Cheech says to Judy. She grins. He grins back and then concentrates on the problem. Well, you don't eat over 24 hours, he says to the GI residents and nurses congregating around Judy's bed. You only eat over a short period of time, so we have to take her off this pole and eventually get her down to just feeding at night. They nod, all wondering how they will do this. They start thinking about how many calories she can absorb in a certain period of time without feeling nauseated, how they'll keep her line open with no solution constantly dripping into it, and how short they can make her alimentation time. At the moment, they're feeding her a day's worth of calories and nutrients 24-7, but that won't fly at home. She'll want to be free to move during the day, unencumbered by her IV pole. They have to cut her alimentation time in half, from 24 to 12 hours, so that she can start her alimentation before she goes to bed and finish it when she's ready to get up for the day. But first, they have to figure out how to disconnect her. Jeej puts a senior intern, Dr. John Wright, in charge of that first step. Jeej turns back to Judy and tells her, Now, while John is working on disconnecting you, you have to work on learning how to eat. You'll have to get used to being around other people while they're eating. Go down to the cafeteria with Cliff and have lunch with him. Judy can't wait to tell Cliff this news. He beams when she does, and they set off. Judy looks like a Christmas tree in her flapping nightclothes, her pole festooned with bags and bottles, clanging and clunking, and her leg bag draped over her arm. The cafeteria staff hear them coming and stop them at the entrance. You're not allowed in here, ma'am. Dr. Chichiboy sent us down. He told us to come for her to learn to be around other people when they're eating, Cliff replies. Doesn't matter. We can't have you upsetting the paying customers. Cliff is mad. Judy is disgusted. They turn on their heels and clank back upstairs. Cheech pops in when he sees them disappearing into her room and asks them how it went. It didn't. Oh? He raises his brows. His lips tighten as he listens to their story. He picks up the phone. Cafeteria, he tells the operator brusquely. After a brief pause, he starts speaking. Look. I sent my patient down to help her learn to be around people when they're eating. She needs to get used to this, and you need to understand that this is a teaching hospital and this is life. And you better get used to it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, if you lose some sales, that's too damn bad. I don't want to hear about you stopping her again. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the cafeteria is for the patients. It's not for anybody else. You better get used to it, understand? I'm sending her back down. He waits to hear compliance before hanging up. You can go back down. I've sorted it out. They go back down. The staff again hear their clangor before seeing them, but let them in this time. Their eyes follow the couple as Cliff seats Judy before he goes over to the counter to get a hot meal. The patrons, too, stare at Judy. They don't even see staring when Cliff returns to the table and glares back at them. For Judy is sitting there with no food in front of her, just watching Cliff eat. There's a hunger in her eyes as she follows his fork as it scoops up the food and moves it to his mouth and back down to his plate. Suddenly, she snitches a morsel of food from his plate and chews it, savoring the flavor and texture until it is reduced to tasteless mush. 
Joy lights up her face and obliterates the disgust she feels at the cafeteria staff. She spits it out discreetly into a napkin. She smirks at Cliff for her naughty behavior. She can't wait to do it again. Meanwhile, it's back to bed. Wright follows him back into her room and sends Cliff out into the hall. He thinks he knows how to disconnect her from her alimentation while keeping her subclavian line open. Cliff, standing near the nurse's station, watches Wright coming out of her room, going back in, leaving the room, going back in, as he attempts his feet two or three times. On one of his trips past Cliff, he pauses to explain that he's trying to decide how much heparin to put in the line to keep it from clotting. It's a bit of a struggle, he admits. Finally, he comes out for the last time, relief relaxing his face. You can go in now, he tells Cliff. I'd like it if you could take her for a short walk down the hall. Then we'll reconnect her. He leaves for a few minutes of decompression. Cliff goes into the room and assists Judy out of bed. She wobbles and grabs Cliff's arm. For over six months, she has not stood on her own. She's had her pole to lean on. They shuffle out of the room and down the hall a short way, then back again. Judy gets into bed with great relief, her legs shaking with fatigue. Wright returns replenished, ready for the next big step, hooking her back up. The next morning, Cheech asks Judy how it went and is pleased with the success of the disconnection. Good, he says. He begins to interrogate his residents about the next phase of her recovery, reducing the time she is on her alimentation. Some of his students offer various possibilities before realizing that the pumps currently in existence cannot pump 300 cc's per hour, the rate to which they need to increase the infusion. The intralipid easily drains into her line under the force of gravity, but the amogen dextrose mixture comes in bags and needs to be pumped in. Noticing blank faces, Cheech suggests using air pressure and he puts right on to developing a pressurized system. Let's start with reducing her alimentation time to 20 hours, he instructs Wright before leading them all out to see the next patient. Over the weekend, Wright finds three 1,000 cc blood pressure cuffs. He commandeers a pressurized air tank. He gathers up some tubing and clamps. With all these pieces, he engineers a new system for Judy on her very own IV pole. He enrobes the amogen dextrose bags in the blood pressure cuffs. He hooks the bags up to each other with tubing and the cuffs to each other with their own tubing. He connects the end cuff to the air pressure tank and turns on the tank. He had calculated the required pressure beforehand and watches the dial creep up to his target number. He switches off the tank. The cuffs have all swelled. He flushes Judy's line and connects the nearest bag's tubing to it. The last bag on the line starts emptying as the alimentation flows from one bag into the next and finally into Judy under pressure of the cuffs. As that bag empties, its cuff deflates and the next bag starts emptying. Wright sets a timer to monitor the rate of flow and to ensure that this first incarnation finishes in 20 hours as Jeege wants. As he tells Pat on Monday, she can just go to bed and not have to wake up to change the bags. Emboldened by the knowledge that she will live, Judy takes back some control over her destiny. She asks the nurse for writing paper and pulls the bed tray close. She writes, Room 1346, G. West, College Wing, TGH, May 18, 1971. With the proper addressing done, she gets down to business. With a fine-tipped pen and in her neat, right-leaning cursive with nary a printed letter and all the capitals done as elementary school students are taught, she writes, Dear Dr. Fenton, I feel the time has come to put into written form my request for information re-my equipment. 
First of all, I would like you to know we do appreciate your interest in my case and the trouble you have taken in looking into safer, more practical equipment for me to take home. I understand this equipment has now been decided upon but has not been ordered yet. She continues on a new page, her writing sloping more, thinning the letters. Could you please be good enough to explain to me why this order is being held up and how long I can expect to wait? My family is moving as of the second week in June and I must make some plans between now and then. Realizing that you will understand how I feel in this matter, I am sure I can expect a reply in the next few days. Thank you again for your interest and kindness. Yours truly, Judy Taylor. She has one more letter to write, even though her hand is cramping up. She addresses it properly before writing. Dear Dr. Gigi Boy, we know there is no way in which we can thank you and Drs. Langer and Johnson for what you have done for me, but thank you anyway. In close, please find a letter, copy, of a request I am sending to Dr. Fenton read my equipment. With our most grateful thanks, I remain, yours truly, Judy Taylor. Later that month, the staff members decorate an IV pole with a big red bow, and one of Judy's favorite residents, Dr. John Zorab, nicknames it Lester. The nurses and residents wheel him in and together, laughing and smiling as they officially present Lester to Judy. She guffaws at her new friend and quickly receives him. She loves Lester, for as long as he is with her, she is not dead. She cannot wait to care for her family again. She soaks up everything the nurses teach her about the technology. Cliff, too, does not fear the responsibility that is to come. He's focused only on getting his wife back. The staff teach them how to set up the apparatus and how to clean her skin and her line. They teach Judy how to hook herself up and how to maintain her G-tube. They drill into both of them the danger of infection. She cannot afford to even get a cold. And that a temperature, even a mild one, means danger. She must immediately come down to TGH, they assert. She confides in Pat her concerns about social issues and being intimate with Cliff because of her abdomen being crisscrossed with scars and, and tubes coming out of her. Pat reassures her, but no one anticipates that soon after returning home, Judy and Cliff will discover that intimacy is out of the question. Her body is too fragile and sunken to make it possible. He remains monogamous and committed to her, even though she confides to a friend years later that she wouldn't have minded if he'd had an affair. For herself, she didn't miss it. She was alive. Everything else came second. And if that was the price to pay for a living, then so be it. Worried about the long drive from Bob Cajun to Toronto, Jeege has the residents arrange for a plane to be available from CFB Trenton for swift transport. Zorab gives them written instructions on how to contact the base in the event of an infection or line blockage. The last thing for Judy to learn is how to walk on her own again without leaning on Lester or Cliff. For each month in hospital, it takes a month to recover. She's been visiting fellow patients all up and down the ward, sometimes with Lester, sometimes without, gabbing and offering sympathy, devising practical jokes to play on the residents with like-minded friends. Now she's sent outside on short excursions to Eaton's department store, just down the street at College and Bay. She thrills to being outside, being part of normal life again. Things are looking up. She can see the light at the end of this long tunnel. Unexpectedly, Jeech orders the intralipid stopped. Your serum triglycerides have risen, he explains. We're going to replace the lost calories with dextrose. Over the next several days, he comes in on his morning rounds looking worried. Cliff asks him what the problem is. I don't know, Cheech replies. That is all he says. At first, they cannot understand. He is the doctor. Why doesn't he know? 
Well, Cliff points out to Judy, at least he is honest. Finally, Jeej knows the answer, courtesy of his neighbor and colleague, Dr. Brian Webster. It's your thyroid, he declares. My thyroid, Judy replies. It has become underactive. Oh, I'd forgotten all about that, Judy exclaims. And she tells him about how it had been irradiated and about how she'd gone on these pills. It had seemed so long ago and irrelevant, and she'd been so sick that neither she nor Cliff had thought to tell Jeej. No matter, he assures her, but we can't give you pills now. They'll go nowhere in you. We're going to have to come up with an IV form of L-thyroxine. I've discussed it with Bond. He'll create it for you. The new medicine does a trick, as Jeej would say, but he decides against putting her back on the intralipid. He sees the situation as a unique opportunity to observe what will happen when she's not receiving any fat, to compare the effects of fat versus carbohydrates on the liver. Around the same time, he receives the pathology report dated June 16th on sections of Judy's excised mesentery, gallbladder, jejunum, ileum, and colon. The pathologist found many areas of full thickness necrosis and gangrene, acute purulent exudates on the peritoneum, and a very large number of thrombi in the intramural, particularly in the submucosal veins of the intestine, and also in the mesenteric vein. The arteries were normal. In other words, clots had formed in the major vein that drains the bowels, stopping the blood from flowing out of this organ and back to the lungs for oxygenation. Since blood could not flow out, it also could not flow in to oxygenate the cells. The clots had starved her intestines of nutrients. They died. Jeej hypothesizes that the birth control pill, which is known to increase the risk of clot formation, is the cause of all these thrombi, particularly since Judy had started on a high dose of 2 milligrams later reduced to one milligram in February 1967 after she developed a pregnancy mask. Judy is now off the birth control pill. At last, the big day arrives, Sunday, July 11, 1971. Cliff carries a mountain of supplies to his car, while Judy waits for him in her room. She is dressed and she is excited. All day, nurses, residents, and patients have poured in, wishing her goodbye, a safe journey, and good luck in her new life. Jeej comes in smiling broadly. She smiles back. At last, Cliff walks in and holds out one arm to her. She takes it. They leave her room together. They leave the ward together. They leave College Wing together. They walk into the parking lot and toward the car together. Cliff opens the passenger door for her. Judy climbs in, smiling. He shuts it. He walks around to his side, opens his door, starts the car, and drives out the lot toward home. He, too, is smiling. You have been listening to Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Gigiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigiboy. Boy.